Okay. Sorry to break up good conversation. We're gonna get started. I love this is happening, I love it. We gotta, we gotta jump into the text this morning. Um, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road and we are really glad that you are here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. We're really happy that you're here and uh, we're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. Um, beautiful fall morning. As long as the rain stays away, it feels really, really nice out there. It feels really good. I know a lot of us are tired this morning. Something kept us late a lot longer than it should have. So thank you for being here um, after that. So let me, uh, let me read the text that we're going to work through this morning that I'm going to pray. This is Philippians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you, all, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for just allowing us to come into this place and honor you and glorify you and sing to you. I pray as we jump into your word now that we um, would submit ourselves to it that we would trust that you speak through this word. Even right as we're going through this, you're speaking through it. You're teaching us. You're changing us. And I pray you would soften our minds and hearts. And um, as a result of your word today, it would change the way we live when we leave here. And I, uh, I just pray for your spirit to move this morning amongst us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This is the second week of a series where we're looking at the book of Philippians. This book is written by a man named Paul who, before he became a follower of Jesus, was a horrible person. More horrible than most of us in this room can even imagine someone being. After, he, God, after God saves him by knocking him off a horse, he... Um, is saved. And now he's a leader in the, other, in, the, in the early church. And he finds himself now in a Roman prison. Roman prison in actually the city of Rome. Not just the Roman Empire, but the city of Rome. And this prison is more like an underground dungeon than it is a modern day prison. We have some pictures. See the floor and the wall and the ceiling there? This is what a typical um, Roman prison looked like in Paul's day. 
This is probably the kind of place that he was sitting when he was writing this letter and thinking about the church in Philippi. And he finds himself here because he has been preaching the good news of the kingdom all throughout the Roman Empire. You have Jewish authorities, Roman authorities aren't liking this because they have their own authority structures. When Paul comes into a city and starts preaching the gospel, people believe and it changes them. It changes the way they live. It changes who they give honor to and who they glorify. They, the the, the Jew, Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities were getting robbed of the glory they were getting. So they get mad. They get frustrated. They went to, to crush and stomp out any... Um, resistance to their power, and therefore Paul finds himself in prison. They are threatened by the good news. And it's clear from the beginning of this letter, we, we have to see this before we move on into the letter, but this is a man that is filled with great hope. Paul is a hopeful, hopeful person. And, and as followers of Jesus, those of us who in here, in here are followers of Jesus, we know that hope is one of those things that um, is important in the Christian faith. We should have hope, faith, and hope, and love, and these kinds of things. So it shouldn't surprise us as a follower of Jesus and a leader in the early church that Paul is hopeful. But in our context today, we are bombarded with things on the news and social media that cause us to feel feelings of hopelessness. The world around us sometimes seems to be coming apart. And that's just externally the things we see. Internally, we're fighting against um, anxiety, addictions, depression, loneliness. We are, some of us are in unhealthy relationships and there's no hope for getting out. Some of us just long to be in a relationship. Some of us have kids older kids maybe who aren't following Jesus at the moment, and there are, there are feelings of hopelessness that come with this. And some of us just would give anything for a good night's sleep. There may be voices in your head to just stop and be able to rest. Most of us, I would probably venture to say, will not serve a prison sentence. However, there are lots of things in our lives and our circumstances that can cause us to lose hope, like Paul was, I'm sure, tempted to do. Most of us are fighting for freedom and joy and hope on a daily basis, but things like despair and hopelessness seem to be more, are more frequent companions than those former things in this Christian life. And I'm no different. For a long time, um, many of you know our story, my wife and I, Nicole, it took us a long time to have children, to, to be parents. And, and we have this amazing uh, little, uh, almost three-year-old boy now, and he uh, gives me a lot of hope, especially when I'm apart from him, getting to see him, know that I'm about to see him. He gives me a lot of hope. Um, at the end of my day, um, seeing his smiling face is something that looking ahead gives me a great deal of hope. Recently, I kind of a typical day, I um, get home from, from work and um, pull into the driveway. I'm thinking about him. I'm excited to go in the house and see him, just, just uh, really excited to see me. And I, I, I go in the door and um, can't find him. So I kind of go find him and I'm saying, where's my little man? Come give me a big hug. And he, I come around the corner and he sees me. He goes, he goes, no, I want you to go back to work, daddy. 
that's what I get. Um, but we got it cleared up. I immediately took him outside, and I think it was 50 push-ups I made him do. Um, the knee, the knee, on the knees version. I didn't make him go the full plank version, but um, I'm kidding. I'm really kidding. Don't think I really did that. Um, but over a couple hours, I wore him down, slid him a few suckers behind mom's back. By eight o'clock or so, he, he loved me again. But so even the, something like that, that is thing that should bring me hope, it, sometimes it doesn't work. It doesn't happen when I walk in the door and I have to deal with that in that moment. You see, hope is like, it's like air. Like we all need to hope in something. And I think as humans, we're, we're gonna be driven to find our hope in, in anything because it's, like I said, it's like air. There, there are stories of, um, of like Holocaust survivors in their interviews. These men and women, one of the things they'll attribute their ability to withstand all they faced and come out alive is hope. They were able to find hope in something outside of what was happening in the labor camp that would allow them to um, get through the horrible, horrific ordeal they were facing. There, there are studies, people studying hope now, a great, more than I thought as I was doing research this week, but there are studies that show that people at work who are more hopeful are better workers. People who are more hopeful are more productive in their life in general. People who have a more general kind of disposition of hope tend to be more healthy overall and live longer. Studies of students in all different ages. Um, if a, hope, a hopeful student has a tendency to have a higher GPA in general than those who aren't as hopeful. Athletes, those on athletic teams, on the same teams, guys who are more hopeful tend to be better performers. Okay, so hope is necessary. I think we all feel that. We all grasp for things to give us hope. And I think in this chapter, in the beginning of this chapter, these, these verses here, I think this is what Paul is trying to get the Philippian church to remain hopeful in all that's happening, especially in his own life. In these, in these verses, um, he begins these verses. In verse 3, he begins, um, he's going to begin to, to uh, thank God for them, and then he's going to pray for them. But it's just not any ordinary thanksgiving and prayer. We have to remember where Paul is writing this letter from. He's writing from a dark dungeon. He's alone. He's writing this letter. And imagine you are hearing the, the letter from Paul being read in a church environment in the city of Philippi. This is, your, this is your, probably your spiritual father, maybe the guy who led you to Jesus, and you're now getting word that he's in a Roman prison. You're fearful for him. You're concerned about him. Being in this situation, clearly a death sentence is likely for Paul. This is the likely outcome of Paul, Paul's situation right now. You're concerned. And then Paul sends this letter and he starts the letter off in this way. And he doesn't, he doesn't blame. He doesn't, um, it's not filled with hate. He's not um, um, kind of making excuses with his circumstances. No, he starts off by by, by, by thanking God for them, joyfully thanking God for them. He says, I, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ and I'm praying for you. In all of this from a dungeon where it's his own sewage, Paul's own sewage is a constant reminder of where he is at, the smell of that. Imagine that as he is writing this letter to this church that he dearly loves. So Paul elsewhere in his letters tells us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. 
So this is what he's going to do at the beginning of this beginning of this chapter here in verse 3. Think of hope. He's wanting the readers to have hope. He's wanting us to have hope. Verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And through this whole, really through the whole letter, anytime he says you, it's plural, it should be more of a y'all, but Greek didn't quite pick up on the y'all thing. So when we see you, though, we need to treat it as this is a plural, this is talking to a community of people, the church. Now, the community is made up of individuals, so we can definitely apply it to our lives as individuals, but it has to be applied as well to the church as a whole. And Blake covered this last week in the intro sermon, but I think it's uh, important to remember that Paul, many people have come to faith through the preaching of Paul. Acts 16 gets into that, kind of the narrative version of what happened in Philippi. Lots of people believe, there's a very diverse group of people that believed. Um, Acts 16 highlights a few of those people. Um, and he thanks them for their partnership in this. He thanks them for their partnership in his ministry. This partnership was, was um, through prayer. They were praying for him. It was also financial partnership. They were giving him uh, money to do his ministry, and they were also giving money to other ch- churches. They were a very generous church. And it's also fairly evident this letter's written about eight to ten years after Paul plants the church. And so through those eight to ten years, they've obviously been doing ministry without Paul there. So even in ministry and in, in sharing their faith, they're partners with Paul in this. This is all important to remember as we get into uh, the next few verses. We come to verse six, and I think this is one of the most important verses in the whole book. And I think this is the foundation for hope. Verse 6, Paul says, and I'm sure of this. I'm confident in this. I, I know this, Paul says. What I'm about to say, I am confident in this. And this is a man, remember, where he's writing from, okay? That he, and this is God, God who began a good work in you, us, the Philippian church, those of us who are in Christ, who are Christians, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So we know this about hope. Okay? Hope is a future-oriented idea. Okay? Like it, it finds its grounds in the past, and it affects how we live in the future. It affects our feelings. It affects how we behave. But just by very definition, hope is, is forward-looking. Okay? And, and it can be affected by what we think about the past, and it can be affected by the present. But primarily, we look to the future and it actually affects us in the present. It's interesting in that way. So he's going to take these different aspects of the gospel and remind them of it. He begins with the past. He says, God, he who began a good work in you. And this is just fancy, and he's bringing up a fancy theological word here for justification. Okay, this is justification he's talking about. So where Christ took our sin upon himself, and we were given the righteousness of Christ, and through faith, the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and belief, that's applied to us. And now we can stand before a holy and righteous God, and he accepts us. He forgives us. We can stand in his presence. When he sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Justification is a one-time event for a follower of Jesus. And all of that I just said all happens really instantaneously when we believe the gospel. So he's saying here, remember, God's the author of this. God began your salvation. He's the one that justified you through the work of Jesus Christ. So he wants us to, to know that. He wants us to know the past here. Now, the second half of the verse. 
this same God, the God of the universe, will bring it, the good work that started in us at our justification, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Another, theolo- another fancy theological world, sanctification. Okay? This is talking about sanctification now. Okay? It's the, the process where God is causing us to look more and more like Jesus as time goes on. Now, we are partners with God in that. We are involved in that process, but it's clear here that it is God that is orchestrating and moving us along in that process of sanctification. And it's a progressive process that, will, that won't end um, in, in our lives today as followers of Jesus. It will end uh, whenever we die or whenever Jesus comes back, that's when the process is over, which is why he says at the day of Jesus Christ here, okay? So, Paul is saying to them here, I think he's giving them hope. He's trying to move their eyes up to look into the future. Paul's saying, things are going to get hard. Things are going to get tough. You're going to have friends like me, Paul's saying, that get put in prison who may uh, suffer the death penalty here. You're going to be frustrated at your lack of growth in the Christian faith. You're going to be in despair over the same struggles you have over and over and over in the Christian life. You're going to hate this world sometimes because this world is a mess. And bad things happen to all human beings a lot of the time. He wants us to to realize that we can look up and have hope to what God is doing in their lives. He's saying, pick your head up. Be encouraged. Take heart. The God, the God of this universe who, who started it all will also bring it to completion. Don't just think about the past where God started it and kind of get lost here in the present. No, think about where this whole thing is going and take heart. When things get really, really bad, no, you'll be reconciled to God in heaven. And that should be good news for those of us who are Christians, who have put our faith in Christ. And make sure we understand that he says it is his job to finish it. He's the finisher. It doesn't say, okay, you're justified by faith and now you just now try really, really hard to make yourselves look more like Jesus. Or here's the seven-step pathway to finding enlightenment and look like Jesus and follow these steps and you'll be good to go. No, he says that God started it, God will finish it. And that should bring us a lot of freedom to now, yes, it's, we, we, we work hard. Yes, we try. Yes, there's effort involved on our part. But man, knowing that the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith is working in the present to get us to that, that's comforting. That should be comforting to us. Hopefully that brings hope. Um, personally, I have... Um, from as long as I can remember, I've, I've always struggled a little bit with depression, mild depression. I, I, I'll get these um, this wave, waves of melancholy that kind of wash over me out of nowhere. I can't tie them to anything. But when I'm in one of those moments, there, there's really nothing in that moment, nothing around me, nothing on earth that can cause me to kind of get out of that pit. Um, and what I usually do in my, my default um, I hate to say sometimes, is that I, I look to my circumstances to make me feel better. But it's always usually future-oriented because I'm looking to grab onto some hope. Like, okay, if it, just in a couple of weeks when maybe my week lightens up a little bit and I can get some rest. 
or that vacation we have planned, it will be so good to be on that vacation to, to kind of, so, so the vacation isn't here yet, but I'll think about that vacation, maybe dream about the vacation to allow me to feel better in the present. But those things come and they go, and oftentimes I kind of get back into this melancholy state, this mild depression. And I think God wants me to know, if he's, he's talking to me through this, it's, yes, you have a good grasp on the past. You know what Christ has done for you and who you are in Christ. But think about where this is all going. You have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. That right now, no matter what your circumstances, Jeremy, God is working in you to finish the work he has set out before us, before me, before him. And it's heading somewhere. We know the future if we're followers of Jesus. And oftentimes that that's all I have in those moments, to just daydream about heaven, daydream about uh, reunification, um, with getting, actually getting to see Jesus face to face, being reconciled back to God, imagining what it's like to worship him in the future without my junk getting involved. Just lifting up my eyes to the future helps me deal with stuff in the present. Are you hopeless? You struggle with this. I encourage you to lift your eyes up and think about the future. And not this, you know, angels, you know, cherubim floating on clouds with harps and stuff. Like, no, like, like the person of Jesus, like getting to be with him unencumbered by your sin, your junk and all these distractions. No pain, no tears, no junk that we have to face in this world. I encourage you to allow your minds to go there. So verse seven, let's look at verse seven. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about, all, about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's just so funny that you can, you can see Paul here. Like he has this kind of, big theological thought in verse six. And then in verse seven and eight, he goes back to just like breaking out and, and just telling them how much he loves them. It's things like, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. When's the last time you told somebody you loved, another brother and sister that? That I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus as a brother or sister. It's what Paul is telling the Philippian church. This is how much he loves them. And now we're going to move on to verse 9. Paul's been thanking them up to this point. And now he's going to switch to actually praying for them. And you could say that he's been praying for them up to this point. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. But now he's going to switch to a prayer of um, really petition and asking God to do things in the Philippian church and us. So he's, remember, he's reminded them of God's work in the past and what's coming in the future. And now he addresses the present with this prayer. Verse nine, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And so we'll stop there. This is um, commonplace with Paul. Paul, in the beginning of his letters, will go on a, a, a little riff kind of he's on now in these three verses we're gonna look at. And the, the things he covers in these three verses are actually set up like a table of contents for the rest of the book. Okay, so the things that Paul is going to unpack in Philippians for the rest of this book a lot of them are tied up in, in verses 9, 10, and 11. And if you look at a lot of Paul's books, this is what he's doing. These themes he's going to hit here. So 
We're not going to go into any of them in depth because they're all coming later in the book. Okay, but these, these are the things he's praying for us, which, which by the way, is a really good um, model for us, who, those of us who are teaching, even if it's, you know, teaching your kids at home, don't miss over that, uh, miss that. But if you are, if you know you're going to teach something and you want people to learn what you're teaching, it's good to pray for the learners and for what you're going to teach ahead of time. This is what Paul's doing. He's like, God, I want these things to be made a reality in this church's life, in these, in these Christians' life. And then he's going to come back later and actually just in this letter and, and teach on those things. It's good that he's praying that God in the spirit would work in people as he is teaching. So first he prays that their love would abound more and more. Go ahead and put that uh, verse back up so we can kind of follow along here. We're going to be here for a few minutes. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Okay, so love. Okay, and he doesn't give us a qualification here to this love. He doesn't tell us who to love, but so it's, it's a broad sense of love. It's like we just want to be people who are characterized by love, he's saying. So pray that your love would abound more and more, that you would be, uh, over time, be more and more characterized as a loving person that would grow and grow. Now, when we throw out love, let's define that because our culture will define that for us. When we see love, we need to first go to who God is. Let God um, form our definition of love. The scriptures say God is love. There's other characteristics, though, that kind of come out of that. His, his patience, his kindness. These are things we can go on and on and on about. But the apex of God's love is him sending his son to this messed up earth to die for men and women who don't love him, who wanted nothing to do with him, who were in rebellion, and who were his enemies. And yet he sent Jesus, his only begotten son, uh, to rescue sinners like you and me. That's the greatest act of love. So let's, let's filter this definition of love through that. And when we know with, with this idea of love, there's always action behind it. Like if you can't just talk about love and then not do anything, it almost kind of kills the definition of that. Um, listen to uh, 1 John three eighteen. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's just not talk about love and just be noisy talkers, but actually do something about it. If you say you love, then you go love. Actions come behind love. This is what God did. He said he loved the world, then he sent his son to die for the sinful world. But he's not only asking for their love to increase. He says with it, he says knowledge and discernment or, or depth of insight. Okay, so let's take this word knowledge. Anytime knowledge is used in, in really the Bible, um, I say anytime, most of the time, it is referring to the knowledge of God or knowledge of the truth. Okay, so in this case, that's, that's what it's talking about. Knowledge of God, knowledge of truth. The second word here is, is wisdom, really wisdom. It's depth of insight, it's discernment, it's wisdom. Okay, so allow your love, your love would abound more and more with it, um, wisdom and knowledge, okay? So knowledge, pursuing, knowing God more, understanding more about who God is, understanding more of the word. And the wisdom is, is that taking that, what we know, and actually put it into practice as we live our lives. So be more loving, um, be wise, and pursue uh, the knowledge of God, who he is in relationship, okay? Um, so these are the three things he is praying for us to have it, and and this with this whole thing, Paul is not rebuking him here. He's not rebuking him. He's he's calling them to do something here. 
but it's not, he's not um, giving them a verbal spanking. We see that in other letters. We said in Galatians and 1 Corinthians where Paul really gets after a church and really rebukes. But here it's not like that. The tone is like, you know what? I have heard since I left. Like when I was with you, you were, you were loving and, and you were doing all these things. But since I left eight years ago, I keep hearing things about your church and how loving you are. And that is awesome. But keep it up. Let that love abound. Let that love grow. And not only love, like pursue the knowledge of God and pursue wisdom and live um, as wise followers of Jesus. So it's this like, it's this, this pet talk, this like pregame talk, like a coach. He's saying, I love you and you're doing amazing. Keep it up. And so as we're reading this, and I could say this about Providence Road. So I feel like this, our church loves really, really well. And we always have. I feel like we've loved each other um, very well since the time we planted this church. It's been one of those things that I think consistently over the last seven or eight years, I can look back on and I have plenty of examples and plenty of stories how our church shows up for each other in times of crisis. That's a really, really good thing. But as Paul told the Philippians, I'm going to say, let's keep it up. Let's keep doing it. Let's keep, and with love, not just keep love out there, but continue to know God and be wise so then you can have more love and your love will abound more and more. This should be encouraging to us. Verse 10 says, so that, so these three things, he's asking them to increase so that you all, the church, may approve what is excellent and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So approve what is excellent. Just know your priorities in the Christian life. There are some things that are great things. There are some things that are good things and there are bad things. And he's basically saying, know what is best. Like know what is excellent in this Christian life and pursue those things. So we can be wise in those areas. Um, know what ultimately matters. Be intentional with your life. The things that God has given you, don't waste them. Your time, how do you use your time? Like know how to use your time in an excellent way in light of our charge to glorify God. How are we using our time? How are we using our money? Are we giving our money to the best things? Are we using it on the best things in the kingdom? Our talents, our skills, are we using those things for the best things? Not just for the okay things. And obviously we kind of know not for bad things or evil things, hopefully. But even, I think some of us should say, we're going to use them and we're kind of content. We're going to kind of do this. But no, is that the most excellent thing? And this is what Paul's asking. So love, wisdom, and knowledge leads to be able to approve what is excellent. And then the, the next two words here, pure and blameless, most commentators think that he's using these two words back to back like that because pure is referring to our interior life and blameless is our exterior life. So our interior life, purity, how, what are our motives like? Do we do things out of uh, selfishness or selflessness? Do we covet do we want other people's life and other people's stuff? Do we have an agenda by how we act? Do we try to be someone that we're really not? Do we try to act like we have it all together and we really don't? This is purity. Blameless. This is our outward life. If somebody was to look at you and know that you are a follower of Jesus, for the most part, does your life reflect like someone who loves Jesus? It's not perfection, but saying for the most part, if somebody was watching you and didn't know anything about you, they could say, yeah, how that person handles, you know, maybe it's time, maybe it's how they speak, it's how they treat others, it's how they treat the broken, how they use their talents and their skills, how they use their money, how they use technology. That's a big thing that we have to think about. 
are we using technology appropriately as followers of Jesus? And what does what the use of technology appropriately look like for a Christian versus someone who is not a follower of Jesus? You know, those, all those questions, like this is our outward life. And so and I think those two, two things need to be in congruency. Like we need to be the same person, inward and outward. That's at least our goal. You know, we all still like to hide things. We all still like to put on masks and pretend like somebody we're not. But as we grow in our faith, those two things should match up as time goes on. And then I love the last phrase here, at the day of Christ. Um, let me go, actually, he says, for the day of Christ. That's important. He says, for the day of Christ. So earlier in the letter, this paragraph, remember, he said, at the day of Christ, where he would complete the work in us. Now he's saying, for the day of Christ. So, he's, so all these things are happening for a day in the future. Once again, I think Paul is lifting our eyes up to the future and wanting, using the future the future reality to motivate us here in the present. And we know the metaphor that the Bible uses for this day. When Jesus returns um, to set up his kingdom and establish his, 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 uh, the new heavens and the new earth here on this earth. And that's a wedding day. That's the metaphor for this. Okay, and there's, there's a lot of intentionality why he uses this. And he calls us the bride of Christ. We're waiting for our groom to come. We're anticipating that. And we, those of us, most of us in here have been around weddings. Wedding days are a huge deal. And think about it. It's a future day that affects a, a, a heck of a lot how we live in the present. For example, our calendar. You put that thing on the calendar way ahead of time and you clear everything, right? So it affects your calendar. It affects your money. Like you start saving money for that day way ahead of time because it's expensive, but it's worth doing for. So it changes the way you handle your money changes the way you work. You better get your work done or your schoolwork done or whatever because you want to be able to get married and maybe go on a honeymoon. So you got to make sure those plans are created, okay? And then a lot of us are kind of an oxy, a little bit backward, I think, or it's just strange that we, uh, we want to look really good for our spouses on our wedding day. So we actually even change the way we treat our body. None of us have ever walked into gym before and you get engaged. You're like, okay, gym time. Gym memberships go up. And, and, but it's funny because then you get married and you spend the rest of your life watching each other's bodies just fall apart, you know? <laughs> Sorry for those of you who aren't married, but it's coming, you know? So, um, so you got this one shot, I guess, and you're like, okay, we're, we're uh, that. So, um, yeah, marriage is amazing. It's awesome. But I'm speaking truth, okay? But in all seriousness, like on the day of Christ, like he wants us to think about this day. And it changed our love, it changed our knowledge, it changed what we prioritize, it changes our purity, it changes our, how we act on the outside. This is why I'm saying for, for the purpose of the day of Christ. This is future oriented. And then the last verse that we're gonna cover today, it says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we remember at the beginning, justification, Christ dies, gives us his righteousness, we have his righteousness, which makes us acceptable before God. But the righteousness that Paul is talking about here is not that righteousness. It's actually talking about the righteous way to live. Okay, so he says that the, the fruit of righteousness, the, our, our holy life, uh, honoring God with how we live, this is what Paul is talking about here. But notice he doesn't, he doesn't move on from the gospel. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness. So this is us living a righteous life. That comes through Jesus Christ, okay? So our ability to live a life Worthy of Christ comes from the righteousness that's already been given to us. And once again, back to the process. God has saved us. He is continuing to save us now through the Holy Spirit. And he will bring that to completion in the future and will save us. And 
we are not acting there at all. Now, we come in and we work hard and we, and we effort to try to, to, to do the things that Paul's calling this church to do today, but it's all taken care of because of the work of Christ. He will complete it. It's not dependent upon us. He will complete the work. It's future-oriented. And then he ends that with, to the glory and praise of God. We're doing all of this. We talk about a lot here. It is all for his glory. Everything he mentioned today, living, Jesus dying, all of these things are for the glory and praise of God, which is why we do everything we do. So as we leave here, we, we want to live lives that are marked by love and wisdom and knowledge and being pure and blameless and being able to know what is right and know what is excellent. And in Galatians 5, in another letter, Paul, Paul breaks this out a little bit more. In Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. He talks about things like peace, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things I think we would want to mark our lives as followers of Jesus. And he lays those out and elsewhere. But, but that all comes through kind of knowing who we are and know where things are going. And that changes the way we live in the present. So we need to let our mind go to the, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the Bible calls it. When Jesus will return and we are prepared in white, clothed in white because of his blood. And that, what that day is going to be like. And if you all who aren't married dream about your wedding day, or those of you who are married think your wedding day was awesome, this thing will blow that away. I mean, just imagine that, because that's a pretty awesome day for most of us. But imagine like that just being paling in comparison to what is coming for those who love Jesus and are saved. Now, what can we do here? I'm gonna give us a couple of quick things. Um, I think when we come in here every week, when we sing songs, when we pray together, when we kind of sit under God's word and understand this and we're, take communion every week. When we do all these things, we're not doing them just because that's what churches are supposed to do. We come in here as a body, as a church, to be able to remind ourselves of the hope that we have. Because this life doesn't, oftentimes doesn't give us anything to hope for. And internally, there's sometimes nothing in there to hope for in our own flesh. We need something outside of us to give us hope. This is why we do everything we do here as a body. So every Sunday when you come in here, it's kind of, it's just, it's just coming in every week. It's reminder, recalibration, who you are, where this thing's headed, have hope. Every week, that's why we do this. Missional communities, this is our, our the uh, way we do kind of smaller groups of people here at the church. We encourage you to get in a, in, a, in a missional community because you need help remembering this every single day, every single week, because you will run into despair. There will be feelings of hopelessness that you have, and sometimes you can't get out of that yourself. You need somebody to go, remember, like Paul, remember who you are. Remember this. Have hope. Remember the wedding. Remember where this is going. You need this from other followers of Jesus. And within missional communities, we have these things called fight clubs, that smaller, even smaller groups, same gender. We get together, and we really try to go after these things. Talk about hope and joy and freedom and how we live our life. Um, bottom line is we need hope. We need it. And this is where we find it. What we talked about today in Jesus, in his word, who God is. And also the world needs hope. I mean, the, the, you talk about, I mean, you can look at suicide rates. You can look at um, 
addiction. You can look like epidemics of loneliness, even though we have thousands of friends online. Like all of these things are trending up, which tend to show that there is a degree of hopelessness that is happening in our culture. And this is the answer, in my opinion. This is the answer. This is what the Bible would say is the answer is Jesus. But we need hope to be able to go out to give the world the hope that we have. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that um, as Paul, I can just imagine sitting across from Paul and him looking me in the eye and saying that I am confident in this. He said in verse six, I know this to be true. This comes from a man who at this time when he was writing this letter had suffered shipwreck. He'd been beaten, been lost at sea. He'd been um, basically tortured, thrown in jail multiple times, spit on. Everything we can possibly think of, Paul had suffered when he's writing this letter. And he says, this I know. I'm confident in this. Trust me when I say this. And it's in your word and you're speaking through Paul. So we can trust that now. So I pray as we come to take communion that we can remember the hope that we have. And that we can step forward like Paul and say, I know this is true. I know that he who began again work in me will complete it and allow that to change us this week, God. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.